Coming up on Black Issues Forum, we'll meet the first black chair of the state Democratic Party, get views from the leaders of both the NCAE and North Carolina PTA on the return to in-person learning and see how young farmers are sowing their futures after centuries of systemic discrimination. Stay with us. Hello and thanks for joining us on Black Issues Forum. I'm Deborah Holt Noel. Today we're talking with someone who just made political history in our state. Dr. Bobby Richardson is now the chair of North Carolina's Democratic Party, the first black person to hold that role. Dr. Richardson, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Deborah. I appreciate the invitation. Looking forward to our conversation. We have heard repeatedly throughout this pandemic about the disparity between black and white and brown communities in terms of the tremendous impact. Would you talk about some of the legislative priorities that are going to address some of the inequities that have come as a result of COVID? I will share as much as I know. Um, we, you know we, this... this uh, Legislators have just passed a package that uh, did not totally meet the governor's approval. It did not do enough for social distancing and enough for uh, unemployment uh, benefits, nor was he satisfied with the um, lack of bonuses for teachers who have been working in the trenches so hard because it is such a tremendous uh, task that they have to undergo now. So, but we are grateful that the General Assembly has finally taken the first step toward bringing relief to the citizens of North Carolina. And we certainly hope that they will continue to stay at the table and continue to negotiate and make the best decisions for the citizens of North Carolina, because that is what government is supposed to do. It's supposed to help citizens when they cannot help themselves. Well, as you mentioned, everything certainly that the Dems wanted in this package are not included. And some are saying that the surplus can be used to cover some of those needs, while others in the legislature say, no, there's no need to dip into the surplus right now because uh, not because this is not an emergency time, but because more relief is on the way. What do you think about that? I think that is truly a... Um poor lack of leadership and judgment on our legislative part because that is the purpose of a rainy day fund. And many of the families in North Carolina are not just facing a rainy day fund. They are facing flood type situations. They are uh, in line for food that they cannot afford to put on their table. They are suffering from the fact that they're not able to pay their bills. They are also suffering with the fact that the COVID pandemic has created a, another set of issues. So sickness and health and death is even uh, impacting our communities. So I don't know what a rainy fund is for if it's not for conditions like what we're facing now, uh, the crises that our families are undergoing. And even though other funds are coming along, we need to... Uh, um, put as much support out there now, and then when those other funds get here, there's always a way to sit down and negotiate how those funds will also supplement the needs of the citizens of North Carolina. 
Let's talk about the return to school. Certainly people are anxious to get kids back into schools. You yourself are a former teacher and educator. Can you talk about <clears throat> the disparities though, the inequities that African-American kids are facing in our public schools uh, currently and that have been exacerbated by COVID-19 and exposed by COVID-19? What needs to happen to try to close the achievement gap and create uh, greater equity for black kids in schools? Broadband is a major um, challenge for our rural communities and our communities of color. We definitely need to um, make sure that they have access. It's very difficult to uh, be in a learning environment that and not have access to the learning experience. I've noticed in Franklin County, we have a mobile bus that has accessibility on it and it drives to certain portions of the community and parents have to drive up to this uh, uh, particular spot to access uh, broadband. We also know that students missing classes does uh, impact their learning ability, but if students are ill and their parents are ill, then they still will not be able to access education. So I think that we need to make sure that, that the summer program that the General Assembly is offering, six weeks is probably not long enough. Um, we probably need to continue it much longer. We probably need to do some uh, additional afternoon uh, type programs, but our African-American our African communities and our communities of color are usually the ones that have less resources. Their parents are working and not able to be home many times to help them with their learning environment because they are in the essential job uh, positions most of the time. So, so, so there is a disparity. Yeah. Broadband is one access. Yes. And Dr. Richardson, just very quickly, is there more that you hope will be done to try to address the great, uh, the, the increased gap that will have occurred as a result of COVID, the gap, you know, how helping these kids to, to catch up? I certainly hope there is. I certainly hope that the General Assembly is looking at all kinds of uh, opportunities of funding. And I know our superintendents and our principals are just waiting for those tools to put in place to make sure that students will have extra time and will be able to close the learning gap. And we will probably be facing a uh, extended school year, which is what I think we need, whether it's summer or whether it's afternoon. Dr. Bobby Richardson, thank you again for spending your time with us. Thank you, have a great day. As this unique school year continues, many students and teachers around the state are preparing for the return to in-person learning. Lawmakers and now most recently health officials seem to agree this is a necessity. Learning in person is critically important to students. And I look forward this week to more action to make sure that that happens in a safe way. 
but there's still friction on how to do that. Governor Cooper recently vetoed a bill that would have required districts to offer in-person learning options. Many are already doing that. And on Thursday, the State Board of Education approved new guidance for reopening, while also urging schools to get students into the classroom. Here to bring us some perspective is Tamika Walker-Kelly, president of the North Carolina Association of Educators. Welcome to Black Issues Forum. Thank you for having me this morning. Tamika, I want to ask you, do teachers feel heard in the policy changes that are being made and especially the budget as well? So during this time, our organization, NCAE, has continued to hear from educators all across the state in different districts, rural, urban. And so we have heard our educators say loudly that many of their concerns, uh, their hopes for this school year have not been adequately heard, either on the local level or on the state level. And so that is one of our goals of our organization, is to continue to elevate educator voice into this discussion because they are a critical part of student success in our whole school communities. To help communicate that voice, what are educators feeling right now? Is there excitement to return to the classroom? Because they understand, um, and I think we all have in mind, the, uh, the interest of the students out there. But what are teachers feeling? So our educators and our school staff, they are very excited uh, to return to more in-person instructions. Educators love being in the classroom with their students and seeing those light bulb moments and seeing those faces and their smiles. But we are still in the middle of a global pandemic, one that has cost the lives of at least 15 educators here in our state. And so safety is a huge concern for our educators, not only for themselves, but for their students and their entire communities and their, and their own families as well. And so it continues to be a point that educators will raise. We know and we're glad that educators have been able to get the vaccine, but we know the vaccine is just one layer of protection that is needed with many different other safety strategies and mitigation strategies to keep our school communities and our entire community safe. Well, we've had a year now since COVID hit us um, to kind of lean back, I would say, and evaluate how the classroom is constructed, how schools operate. And if we go back to the normal that was before, what we do know is that African-American students were lagging behind academically. So that's not the normal that I would imagine we want to return to. What have we learned during this time and what do you hope will be different about classroom learning in the future? So you are absolutely correct. It has almost been a year uh, since we have had any sort of normalcy. When I walked out of my classroom on March the 13th, I never imagined that I would never go back to that space in a way that we have experienced before. And so you are also right. The COVID-19 pandemic has exposed inequities that have long faced public schools, particularly uh, students and communities of color. And so, no, we cannot return to normal because what was normal was not working for every student in our school. And it is our job as NCAE to make sure that all of our students have high quality access to public education, particularly in our historically underserved communities. And so we have learned many lessons. We have learned 
important that uh, our communities of our underserved students need additional resources and support. We know that the Leandro recommendations that came uh, from the West End report are critical in restoring equity and access to all of our students. And so we have to take those lessons and apply them in policy and practice and funding from the General Assembly in order to make sure that we are crafting a new way forward for education for all of our students. And some people see, some folks see the path forward through private education and they see vouchers as a way to do that. But you disagree. Can you share uh, your thoughts on vouchers and why that is not necessarily a choice, in your opinion, for parents who are not getting what they want out of the public school system? So we know uh, our state constitution mandates that every student receive a sound basic uh, education and our our constitution, our general assembly, they know that um, they haven't adequately fund the school system that they are constitutionally mandated to do. And so there's no way to adequately fund two separate school systems. We know that many families aren't aware that our private schools uh, do not have the same accountability standards for testing, curriculum, or even who they deem to be educators in their system. And so we want to make sure that every classroom has a high qualified, certified educator. And that's what public schools continue to offer. Um, so yes, we do, uh, we do not agree that, public, uh, that private schools and vouchers are the way to go. We know that investments in our uh, public school systems who accept every single student are the best for North Carolina families. Tamika Walker-Kelly, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. We know that teachers are not the only stakeholders in this conversation. A year of remote learning is also having a huge impact on parents. Harold Dixon heads up our state's Parent Teacher Association. Harold, thank you so much for joining Black Issues Forum. Thank you for having me. Can you share with us what some of the legislative priorities are for the PTA, especially as it concerns COVID relief and getting these kids back in school safely? Yes. Um, well, first of all, what our priority is making sure that the students are safe. Um, we advocate for all children in, in the state, and we know that parents are struggling. So we advocate that every school district work together with their local officials and to make sure that whatever um, the numbers are with the COVID is in your area is conducive for the kids to go back to school safely in your area. Uh, we know that that's not a, the case over the entire state, so it's by, by county, by district. Uh, so we're advocating for that, but we're making sure that the school districts hopefully have the adequate funding to ensure uh, safety measures are taken in their schools, like being able to sanitize the, the classrooms, the um, uh, bus drivers being able to sanitize the buses, making sure that they have those basic supplies uh, that they need to make sure that the students are safe. Do you think that the current budget is offering enough to supply that? They had to reallocate some funds. Uh, I, I do know that because for example, the funding that we had set aside for the free reduce, well, for the free breakfast uh, for every student in the state had to be reallocated. And those funds had to be reallocated for the food sites uh, that you saw throughout the community while the schools were closed. So uh, there was some shifting of the funds. So I'm, I can't honestly say that the entire budget uh, is adequate, but I do know that they did some shifting of the funds to accommodate uh, helping schools get prepared for um, 
the safe return and also um, making sure that the students were safe. Well, the state PTA is responsible for a lot that it probably doesn't get credit for, like um, um, free and reduced lunch programs. And here you are with the effort to try to get breakfast in schools as well. But there's yet another effort that you've been working on and at the forefront of, and that is community PTAs. Talk a little bit about how those work and what your plan was yes. for that. So right before the pandemic, we had a, a forum in Durham, North Carolina. Uh, it was a winter symposium. And we talked about issues in the community. So when you think of a PTA, most PTAs are centered in the school. They have to do fundraising. They advocate for things in the school in that, those communities. And there's a but profile. The there's, a myth, there's a mythical profile of who's involved. <laughs> yes, because normally when you say PTA, automatically you think, suburban housewives, stay-at-home moms, soccer moms, riding around in the tennis outfits. And, and those those are perceptions that we have. But then somebody like me shows up on the scene and that breaks that myth. You're rocking it. <laughs> You're rocking the myth. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so the community PTAs, they focus more on the issues uh, outside of the school. So for example, uh, what the students are facing after the school bill? What are they going home to? In some cases, we tell teachers, um, you can send homework home every night. It will never, ever, ever get done because of the issues that our students are dealing with when they leave the school. So the issues at home are, are impacting the, uh, the schools. So um, the community PTAs will focus more on the issues outside of the school um, versus the things that's going on in the school with the normal PTAs. Well, uh, COVID, as you said, interrupted that. But now that we're getting back on track, what would you like for the public to know about these community PTAs and how to be involved and how effective they can be with that involvement? So we're trying to <laughs> to re-energize the, the community PTA concept. Um, we are hopefully going to re-establish our partnership with the General Baptist State Convention. There are several other organizations and houses of worships uh, that was interested in partnering with us. So stay tuned. Hopefully there'll be uh, several community PTA sites across the state. We were also partnering with the housing authority in different cities, trying to uh, establish those uh, community PTA units on those properties so that parents who cannot get to the school building have access to at least a PTA in the community. They can still support their children uh, in, with family engagement. Well, it sounds that, like that's going to be very key, and we appreciate the work that you're doing with the PTA. Harold Dixon, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. One of the many issues that COVID-19 has put front and center is food security. And though they often don't get the attention, our farmers play a huge role in providing the food that we eat. But where exactly do black farmers fit in? They've slowly disappeared over the last century, at one point owning more than 14% of the country's farms. Now, that number is less than 2%. A USDA report says intimidation and unfair policies caused much of that loss. It's a similar story in our state, but some are looking to turn that around while also helping the community. To help us dig more into this conversation, we have Julius Tillery, founder of Black Cotton, Kamal Bell, founder of Sankofa Farms, and Kendrick Ransom, owner of Golden Organic Farm. Guys, farmers, thank you so much for being here. This is such a huge issue, um, not only food uh, security, 
but just what the plight of black farmers themselves. And I want to start with you, Julius. Your great-great-grandfather was born free in North Carolina just a few years after the Civil War, became a hog and uh, crops farmer, and uh, held on to 125 acres of land. And now today, you are farming different crops, including cotton, creating beautiful jewelry and other products out of it. And I just want to ask you, how do you think that black farmers have fared through COVID-19 and the federal relief programs that were provided? Well, um, in, in regards to how black farmers uh, fared during this COVID-19 period, a lot of black farmers struggled. Um, a lot of farmers uh, found it hard to uh, qualify for some of the relief programs. And uh, with a lot of aging farmers not understanding how to use the technology to connect to USDA and less people being available to go to the offices, it's been tough for an aging farming group. And for the younger farmers, uh, which we're featuring today, we we are not gonna we're we're not in a situation where we qualify for the programs because we don't have the history or the availability to uh, to uh, qualify for the financing. So one thing young farmers uh, have done is spent this time organizing and putting ourselves out there online and social media through other kinds of media, and we have been able to uh, galvanize energy and uh, momentum through this time because more people have been. Uh, affected with these issues of COVID-19. So people want to connect to the sources, and that's been a great for us. So it's been some good and some bad. We're definitely going to talk about some of the good, but I do want to get your comments also, Kendrick, on what you experienced in terms of relief during COVID, both the highs and the lows, because there was attention after the protests on supporting black business, but it didn't seem to last long. Yeah. Um we have experienced a lot of issues uh, with COVID-19. A lot of stress have came with it. Um, just fluctuating through the markets. Uh, we took a huge decrease in our numbers for the markets. Um, but we stand, stand resilient to this work and we definitely uh, want to add more creativity. Uh, we've launched our, our online um, website as well so people can order directly online. Uh, that way we can continue to social distance as much as possible. Um, we've also doing the CSA. Uh, model where we are delivering boxes to families as well as having drop-off points. So just trying to continue to be creative along this journey, you know, along our flight, uh, dealing with, you know, other system systemic racisms and the lack of access um, to these produce. So we're just constantly trying to create solutions in order to better our communities. Well, Kamal, let's talk about some of those solutions. So we know that um, Farmers in general, and certainly black farmers, suffered as a result of COVID-19 and also through the relief packaging, which many, uh, the, most of them actually, were left out of. Can you talk about the transition from uh, what the impact of COVID-19 has been and, and how you're recovering? Yeah, so when, whenever we talk about the story of Sankofa and, and how we're adjusting, like, in this changing dynamic, I always like to reference the whole aspect of, of sustainability. And what we've had to do is, is try to focus on creating a, a, a sustainable infrastructure so that when we do have times like this, we can adjust. So as far as um, uh, black farmers, this has been a, a tough time for all of us, but I think just our, um, like Kendrick said earlier, our resiliency and just being uh, us being able to adapt has really helped us through this um, through this time. 
Let's talk about some of those specific ways because people who are watching can be supportive and can, and, uh, can help. Um, can you share, uh, Julius, talk a little bit about these community-supported agriculture boxes that have been created. And we talked a little bit about it on Black Issues Forum earlier in the season, but, but tell us more about how that works. Well, community-supported agriculture is a great tool for farmers and uh, groups of farmers working together. Uh, one example is being shown with tall grass bots in Durham, North Carolina, headquartered in Durham, North Carolina. You can Google them and you will find out information. Uh, Kendra is actually doing a great job with his CSA, but what the important thing about it is it gets the funding to the f farmer early so they can be able to plan their production. And with uh, COVID-19, production uh, cycles and production uh, supply uh, lines have been affected, so it's very important for the farmer to get the money up front so we could be able to work effectively, especially with black farmers who are limited with capital resources. And we only have about 30 seconds each for you, Kamal, and also Kendrick, uh, but share with us what some of those different um, opportunities are, specifically maybe the, the black farmers market and uh, sliding scale farm shell. Kendrick? Yeah, the black farmers market has been a great tool. We uh, utilize their uh, market this year. Uh, we was able to sell out quite uh, often. Um, and also just the CSA, you know what I'm saying, going back to what Brother Julius was saying, is a great way to pay the farmers first so that the community is able to sustain uh, a, great, a great quality product. Yes, and the, the Black Farmers Market has helped as well. We vented there. We're gonna, we plan on vending there um, again this year as well. And also working with distributions in the area where they kind of have um, model, they've kind of created their own CSA model where they'll wholesale buy produce from Sankofa or other farms and then distribute them out themselves so the farmer doesn't have to take on that um, extra added stress of planting the food and then also distributing as well. So those are some of the things that we've seen during this time that have helped our farm. Gentlemen, I wish we had more time. I'm actually going to take our conversation offline, and we're going to talk a little bit more. There's more to share, and um, you have more to offer. But I thank you for these few minutes of being on Black Issues Forum today. Really appreciate your time. Thank no, you, everyone. Yeah, no problem. Thank you so much to each of today's guests. You can find all of our content, including more discussion with the gentleman you just heard from on pbsnc.org slash Black Issues Forum. I'm Deborah Holt-Noel. Thank you for watching. through the financial contributions of viewers like you who invite you to join them in supporting PBSNC.